So tonight we begin our season finale of God First, and we're going to be closing this uh, series with God First in our habits. If you've been with us, you know that we've been trying to set the pace and the trajectory of our year by going through Jesus's famous Sermon on the Mount and pulling out some of the key aspects of our life, time, influence, money, our actions, tonight, our habits, and saying, what does it look like for us to take Jesus's words and use them to diagnose our life and speak truth into our life and ask the hard question, is God first in this? And if not, how do I begin to put the words of Jesus into practice so that God might be first in these things? Tonight, as we close out this series, next week we'll be jumping into a new series in the book of Galatians called Back to the Basics. And it's going to be amazing. I can't wait. I haven't preached in Galatians in a long time. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible. We start that next week. But as we close this series, I think it's fitting that it's on with a party. We have the Super Bowl party in the back with a lot of great food and time together in the game. We'll be there as well to watch. Do I have any chief fans in the house? Okay. Do I have any 49ers fans in the house? No. Do I have any fans in the house that don't care about either team but just want to hang out and have good food and hang out with people? There we go. There we go. Well, because Johnny, uh, he gave a a zinger there with uh, pick six, stick six, I want to say that tonight we're going to discover which team has their house built on the rock and which one is on sinking sand. So let's go to our passage in Matthew chapter 7 starting in verse 24 with that segue. Here's what God's word says to us. This is the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' last words as he closes the sermon. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I grew up in church, but kind of not really. I don't know if that resonates with you. I grew up in church, but it was really more like I grew up in a religious experience. I didn't grow up really believing in the power of God. I didn't grow up hearing the grace of God. I didn't grow up hearing about Jesus's heart and desire to rescue and forgive me. I just kind of grew up in an experience where I learned Bible stories. And I can remember this story. I remember, I can like Go back to hearing this story, maybe doing a coloring sheet on building your house on the rock and not the sand. And I can remember thinking, I want to build my house on the rock, but no idea how. Have no idea what that means. And then when I became a Christian in college, I started to grow in my faith. I think if you would have asked me in the first five plus years of my faith, maybe even longer, what does this verse mean? I probably would have said, that you need to go back through the Sermon on the Mount, reread it, and begin to put into practice everything that Jesus says. Because Jesus says that. 
If you put into practice all that I've said, you're a wise man, you built your house on the rock. If you don't put it into practice, your house is on sand. It's going to tumble and crash. And, and, and that's right. Jesus is calling us to go and read his words and put them into practice and follow what he says and believe that what he says is in fact absolute truth for our life. And, but still, the question is how? Like we can read the words of Jesus and believe they are true and still not know how to put them into practice. What does it look like for me to build my house on the rock in Miami in 2024? How do I do that? And that's what we're going to explore tonight. What does it look like to establish habits that will help and aid in putting the words of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, the ways of Jesus into practice in your life? And so, because this is our goal, I want to say something to start. Sometimes, if you're like me, you have all these ideas and you have vision and you want to move forward and you want to install new habits or strategies to grow and to be better, but you don't take a moment to pause and reflect what got you to this place. And I think it's really important if we're going to say, okay, Jesus is calling us to build our house on the rock, that we have to do some evaluation of how we've been building the house so far. What has led us to this point? What are the things in our past that have affected our present? Because every one of us is here in this room with a different story, with different experiences, and different things that have happened that have led you to this place, to this place tonight, whether in the room or online. And that's because our past affects our practice. Your past affects your practice. Jesus says, put into practice all of these things, but your past is going to affect how you put into practice the very things that Jesus says. I was thinking about this for many of us in the room tonight have experienced a great failure. If you are part of the millennial older millennial generation or Gen Z generation, you have experienced a great failure in the past of the church. All of us have an individual past and there's a past with the church. Here's the great failure. It is a failure of discipleship. It is. And here's how we know it. Ready? David Kinneman, who works for Barna, they do studies and surveys of church and faith in America, said this. Teenagers are some of the most religiously active Americans. Hold on to that. Teenagers are some of the most religiously active Americans. American 20-somethings are the least religiously active. So you go from the most religiously active in your teenage years to when you go to college and get into your 20s, you're the least religiously active. In fact, a study came out that last year, there's 1.2 million teenagers in America that left the faith. Something's happening. What's happening? And many of you are here today because you are a casualty of the lack of discipleship. You're the casualty of the church in the past and bad decisions and putting priorities in the wrong place and not walking with you through some of the things that you needed someone to walk with you through. 
And so maybe you're here tonight because you're like, I walked away from the faith a while ago, and I'm trying to now re-explore it again. I'm, tr I'm trying out another time. Maybe you consider yourself somebody that deconstructed. It's a, a term that people use about pulling apart and kind of going down to the foundation of your faith, and you have a heart to reconstruct your faith, but you don't know how. Or maybe you're here and you're like, I, ha I haven't walked away from the faith. I haven't kind of deconstructed everything. I've been faithful for many, many years, for a long, long time. But if I'm honest, I'm really static in my faith. There's a failure of discipleship. There really is. And my prayer is that this message will help you chart a course to build stability in the storms and flourishing in the sunshine. And if you're here tonight and you are a part of an older generation, Gen X or Baby Boomer, I have many conversations with many of you and many others that are they're concerned because their experience in faith and in the church is very different from what is happening now. There's a concern with the lack of spiritual maturity and Bible knowledge and consistency and sacrificial living among millennials and Gen Z of the kind of walking away from the faith or tearing it all apart and not knowing how to rebuild it. And my prayer for you is that God would give you a vision for how he can use you and your story in the life of others. Because the truth is this, that for a long time, a lot of people of great spiritual maturity have complained about younger generations but haven't done nothing about it. Haven't discipled, haven't mentored, haven't poured in. And that has to change because the past is leading us to the present of what's happening in the church today. It really is. And, and just so we're clear, when I say the word discipleship, it's like a very church term. What I mean by discipleship is this. It is walking alongside somebody else and integrating some of these things into the relationship. Teaching the Bible, prayer, sharing life lessons and wisdom that you've discovered on your journey with Christ, with Jesus. It is modeling sacrifice and service and generosity. It is giving guidance and accountability. I wanted to define it like this. If you have our app, Crossbridge Brickle app, you'll see a lot of these notes here. I hope they're helpful for you. It's not on the screen because it's too long. But here's how I define discipleship. Discipleship is a spiritual friendship of mutual growth. It's spiritual friendship of mutual growth discovered through one person taking responsibility for the cultivation of another person's faith. Helping cultivate it, helping pour into it, helping lead. And the other person committed to humbly receive their leadership. So it is a mute, it is friendship, it's a spiritual friendship. It's more than just maybe a normal friendship that you would have in other places. Both people know that they're going to grow through the relationship. And one person says, I am going to help cultivate and challenge and grow and care for the development of your faith because maybe I've been on this journey longer. And the other person is saying, I really want to receive that from you. And here's the truth. It's not about age. Oftentimes, the person that says, I want to help disciple or care for or lead is just because they're a little bit farther along with their journey of Jesus than the other person. They could be younger, but still be somebody who disciples. This is what discipleship means. And my hope is this, that you will walk away tonight saying, I either 
because of my story, I need to disciple someone. I need to walk with someone and pray for someone and guide someone and mentor someone. Or I need that. Because <laughs> I got a lot of things I got to sort out and a lot of questions I want to walk through with somebody else. But part of discipleship requires some of these things. And this is what this whole message is going to be about. There are some things that you need to be willing to install into your life, whether you are wanting to disciple someone else or whether you want to be discipled. This is for both parties. They are healthy habits to help build your life on the rock so that you can weather the storms when they come. The first one is this. It is understanding your story. You have to be willing to understand your story. Famously, Ronald Rawlheiser said this, whatever pain is not transformed is transferred. Every one of us in this room has pain. And a lot of people don't know it, all the different levels of pain. And whatever pain you have that is not transformed will be transferred to your children, to a friend, to a spouse, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a loved one. It will be transferred. Whatever pain is not transformed is transferred. Now, I think about pain in three ways. It's the way I think about it. There's pain that's obvious. So when I was saying pain in your past, you, were, you thought about it. These are the heavy burdens of life. They are obvious to you. They are obvious to other people. You have probably talked to a few people about these things. Or you want to because it's so clear. It's obvious pain in your past and in your life. And then there's pain that's clouded. And clouded pain is pain that you see in your life. It is things that have happened in your life that you feel and you see and they're significant to you, but it's clouded because maybe you started comparing your story and your pain to other people and you think that it's not as big as what other people have and so you've kind of kept it. I don't know if this is really fair, if I should really share this. Is this, am I overthinking this? So one of the worst things you can ever do is compare your story to somebody else's as a way of like kind of mitigating your pain. Clouded pain. You're, you, you feel it, you see it, but maybe other people don't know about it because you haven't given it the validity and the truth that it deserves to process. And then there's pain that's hidden. Hidden pain. That is the pain that you have justified, rationalized, and you sweep under the rug. You don't want to see it. You don't want to deal with it. You know it's there over time because as you've been sweeping that under the rug, it's multiple things. It's built a mound, and as you're walking through life, you keep tripping on the mound, and you're wondering why you keep falling, why you keep stumbling. There's probably a whole bunch of hidden pain that you've just kind of swept under there. See, pain not transformed will be transferred, and it's more than just obvious pain. It is clouded pain, and it is hidden pain. So how do you address the pain of your story so that it might be transformed? Because it's part of understanding your story. Now, listen, it is not easy. It takes a lot of work. It takes time. It does not happen on one night or one session with somebody else. It's through many tears and hard conversations. It is a lot of work. But it's worth it. Because here's, here's what I have seen to be true. Pain that is not transformed 
is not only transferred, but it builds idols. It builds idols. I, I can think of some. It's not true for everybody, but it certainly is true for some. The pain of poverty can build an idol of success. The pain of neglect can build an idol of romance. The pain of abuse can build an idol of secrecy. The pain of judgment can build an idol of praise. We can go back to our pain and see if it's been unaddressed and not transformed, how it has built an idol over time. It has real potential to build idols. And part of understanding your story is not only being able to courageously step into the pain of your story, whether it's obvious or hidden or clouded, but it's being able to see it become transformed as you recognize the idols that those things have built in you. A great example of this is Gideon in the Bible. Gideon is this mighty man of God. His story is famous because God uses him as a leader of an army to take out this massive army that is famous for their victory and how good they are at warfare. Now, Gideon, his army gets whittled down to 300 men, and God uses him to lead 300 men to victory over thousands upon thousands, and he's known as this valiant, mighty man. But that is not who Gideon was. Gideon struggled with insecurity, and he had real issues with his dad. See, there's this part in in Gideon's story where God comes to Gideon, and he says, hey, your father has built idols to false gods. He's built idols to Baal and the Asheroth, and I want you to tear them down, and I want you to put an altar to me, the one true living God. What Gideon doesn't do is he doesn't say, no problem, God, I got this. Here's what he does. At night, when everyone's asleep, he sneaks out of the house. He had to have been so quiet. Sneaking out, going over to the altar, checking the door, making sure that nobody's getting up. And he secretly and quietly takes down and destroys the altar to the false gods and builds an altar to the one true living God. You know why? Because he had a lot of fear and a lot of worry and a lot of nervousness and a lot of issues with his father. And yet God honors his obedience. His obedience was full of trepidation and worry And all types of things, all types of things that were affecting him, being able to put into practice the things that God said to him. And yet, even though in the dark of night, secrecy, and he's not courageous about it, he's not valiant about it, none of that, he follows God step by step obediently. And God honors it. And an idol begins to be torn down in his life that had been built through pain over the years. It was slow, it was hard, and yet God used his obedience. Pain not addressed, not transformed, is not only transferred, it builds idols, and it is worth investing in yourself to do the work. I want to give you three heart habits. That's what I'm calling it. Three heart habits that every single one of us should install in our life. Whether you are looking to disciple someone or be discipled. Ready? The first one is this. And the first two are for you to invest with a confidant. That could be your spouse. 
That could be a best friend. That could be a mentor or someone who disciples you. Here's the first one. Confide and diagnose. This is a habit, not a one-time thing. And let me kind of tell you what that means. It means with this person, you share your pain, your obvious pain. You work to have the courage to share your clouded pain. You give it significance. And over time, you begin to unearth some of the hidden pain. You ask them if they'll help you process your pain. You take courageous steps to have hard conversations with them. You ask them to ask you questions so that you can diagnose. You confide in them and you give them the permission and the authority to help you diagnose. Because it's through conversation that we begin to understand our story. Many of us have a perception of our story, but if we don't look at the pain of our story and transform it and address the idols it's built, we don't fully see our story clearly. And then the second thing is, is creating regular conversation around confiding and diagnosing, meaning this has to be part of your life with this person, with your spouse, your best friend, your mentor. It has to be part of the conversation. It has to be a rhythm that you have. You have to give them freedom when they see certain behaviors or thoughts that you communicate to them or to others. They have to have the freedom to say, hey, where's that coming from? Can we talk about that? You have to give them that. It has to become part of the regular conversation that you have with your confidant. And then lastly, ready? Invest in counseling. Can I get an amen? amen. Listen, so all of us in this room get to a place, I believe, where we need someone else who asks better questions than we do that can help us move through the hard things that we've been through in life. And I, I want to say this, counseling is so helpful. It is so helpful. If you find a good counselor that can walk with you, that you feel comfortable with, it is worth making the financial sacrifices necessary for you to find a counselor. And if you're like, I have no idea where to go, come to, the, uh, come to us, come to the leadership of the church. We want to help make recommendations for you. We have great relationships with counselors all over Miami that will meet in person or on Zoom. Invest in it. It is worth it because it helps you understand your story when you install these habits. And counseling can be in season, it can be in moments, it can be c continuously. It's different for each of us and where we're at in our story and understanding it. But having these healthy heart habits of confiding and diagnosing and having regular conversations with your confidant and then investing in counseling where necessary is so important for you to disciple someone well or for you to be a disciple because it helps you to clearly see your story. It is so important. And then the second one is to prioritize formation in your home and your work. I want to draw us back because Jesus says that we're to build our house on the rock and not on the sand. And one of the most famous, actually probably the most famous passage in the entire Old Testament that everyone that Jesus was preaching to would have had memorized and would have held so close to them. In fact, they would have had it bound to them is Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's called the Shema. It's the centerpiece of our faith. It goes like this. Ready? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. We love this part. God is one. He is Lord. Love him with all your heart and with all your soul. See, oftentimes we can think that belief is only a concern of the heart. It's only a concern of the soul. I'm just about to love God and believe him with all my heart or with all my soul. Yes and amen. But belief is also demonstrated in action. It's not only believing from your heart and your soul the truth of who God is. It's also demonstrating who God is in your life. That's why the Shema goes on. And here's what the next verses say. Verse 7. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This is why there is an entire market around printing Bible verses that you hang in your home. Because our faith is not only something that we believe in our heart, but it's demonstrated in action. We impress it upon our children. It's a part of our home. We take it with us when we walk along the road. It is bound on our hands and our foreheads so people can see it. You know, it's been said that the goal of secularization is to privatize your faith, which means this. You can believe whatever you want, Believe whatever you want about Jesus and the Bible. That is great for you. But keep it out of, out of your work and keep it out of the public arena. Keep it in your religious spaces. Keep it in your home. Don't take it with you on the road. Keep it to yourself. Here, what God's word is saying to us is, is actually the way that we fight against the privatization of our faith that's being preached at us every second. No, no. Actually, we're not only supposed to believe God with our heart, that the Lord is one and he is true, and to love him with all of our soul. We're also supposed to demonstrate that in how we impress it upon our children and how we bring it into our home and how we take it with us on the road. So when people see us and what we do with our hands, they see it. When they look at our forehead, they see it. We are supposed to work Faith into every aspect of our lives. Every single aspect. And so I got three rhythms, three habits. The first one was heart habits. This is like the internal deep work that takes time for you to do. It's important to understand your story. This is how you prioritize faith or formation in your home and in your work. Three weekly habits. Ready? Here's the first one. If you have kids or if you're seeking and, and praying to have kids in the future, Here's what it is. Create a rhythm and routine of faith before your kids. Impress it upon them. What does that mean? Read the Bible with your kids. Pray with your kids. It means listen to worship music in the car with your kids. Ask them questions about their faith. Get memory verses and read whatever you want to do. Have faith be a part of the conversation in your home. And ready? It's not only just doing things for your kids, reading the Bible and praying and listening to worship music. It's not just that. It's also telling your kids you're sorry when you wronged them, not asking them to say sorry when they wronged you only. It's modeling your faith. It's demonstrating your faith. 
It's impressing it upon them, not just in the actions that you set, but also in the demeanor and the way that you exist around them. Secondly, is starting your day with your faith. Your home or your room should be a spiritual refuge. It should be a place where you meditate, where you pray, where you read the Bible, where you listen to worship music, where you journal, where you sit in silence before God. It should be a place of great spiritual refuge. And I really believe this. I really, really believe this. Try it and tell me if I'm wrong. I think that you should start every single day with your faith first. Whether it's through prayer or through reading the word or through listening to a song, however it is, I think your day needs to begin with your faith. Here's why. I have found that if the first consuming thought of your day is an email, a project you have to do, a scheduled appointment, a Slack conversation or an Instagram post, it is very hard to reset your day and orient it around God. And I've also found that if you wait to squeeze God into the very end of your day, it probably means that the first part of your day, God was not a part of it. Start your day with your faith. Figure out what that looks like for you and your rhythm and engage that. It is a healthy weekly habit of building your faith upon the rock and putting into practice the words of Jesus And then lastly, speak about your faith. I want to give you a very simple, practical way that you can speak about your faith. Ready? Here's how you speak about your faith. When you go connect with friends this week, when you go to your work and you talk with people and people say, what did you do this weekend? Do you know what you say? You don't just say, I went to church. They may know that. Maybe they don't. Here's what you say. I did this and I did this and then I went to church. We had a Super Bowl party and I'm still digesting this message on putting God first in my habits. Whoa, wait, what? See, it's more than just like, it's not like just saying, I I went to church. You know, I was like, oh, okay. Like if you're weird about it, it's like they're gonna be weird about it. You know, some of us are like, I, I hung out with friends and I watched this great new show on Netflix. I went to church and um. it's like, tell them what happened. Tell them what you're learning. Tell them what God's teaching you. Bring your faith into your work. Speak about it. See, the Shema tells us that you're not only to impress it upon your children, not only to have it in your home, you're going to take it with you along the road. Like wherever you go, your faith should be with you. And some of you may be thinking, hey, I can't do that because I've never done that. And like my friends or my coworkers have seen me like mess up a lot and I'm not a great Christian example, so I can't do that. Listen, no, you can. Actually, it's a great opportunity because one of the most powerful things in the world is repentance. It is, you know how rare it is for repentance? They are not asking for you to repent. But if you go up to your friends or your coworkers and you're like, hey, listen, I have not been a great example of what I believe. I've made a lot of mistakes. I'm still trying to figure it out, but God's teaching me a lot. And I know that God's love is over me. And I just wanted to say like, sorry. I know you're not asking for it, but I just wanted to tell you that. That is so rare. And it is so powerful. And when you speak about your faith, speak a beautiful story. 
I think sometimes we get so caught up in am I saying it the right way? Did I get all the facts right? Did I hit the right formula? As if someone says, you know, I know you're, you, you go to church, or you believe in God, like, what do you believe? And you're like, okay, here we go, here's the formula. Um, I believe in Jesus, he was born of a virgin, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross for sin, and he rose from the dead. Great. And if you believe that, it's beautiful to you. Every single one of those points is powerful because it's true of what Jesus did for us and who he is. But if you don't believe it, it's like, bro, you just like, what? It's not compelling. It, I want you to imagine this. You see someone out at dinner. They're on an anniversary date. They're married. It's a nice steakhouse. They got a nice bottle of wine. They're sitting, they're celebrating anniversary. And the husband goes, <clears throat> pulls up a little notebook and he goes, Happy anniversary. I love you. We are married because we took vows and gave each other rings. I like my ring. I'm happy I married you to another year. Like, it's true, but it's not beautiful. It's not compelling at all. It, when David talks about his faith, here's how he talks about his faith. Man, I am so weak right now. God is my refuge and he's my strength. David, who wrote most of the Psalms, he says, you know, like, God, you are my shepherd. You lead me to, like, a pasture where I can rest and reflect. And even when I'm walking through, like, the hardest moments of my life, I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. You're with me, God. God, when I'm crushed in spirit, I'm, like, really brokenhearted, and you're always near to me in those moments. See, we need to be able to speak about who God is to us in the moment and who he's showing himself to be and what he's teaching us because this is what is beautiful. It's a beautiful story that we have to share. In fact, what Jesus' words here say to us is so beautiful. Here's what Jesus is saying to you. You are to build your house on the rock by putting into practice what I have taught, but it's not only putting into practice what I've taught, Jesus is also, he's pointing them to what he's going to do. Your house is gonna be built on the rock. So when the storms come, when the waters rise, when the wind is beating against you, it's not gonna be easy. Nobody likes to endure the storm, but when that happens, you're gonna stand because you're on the rock. And if you're here tonight, you know what that means for you because you've met Jesus. It means if you didn't have Jesus, who is the rock, he's the cornerstone that holds it all together. If you were trying to build your life without Jesus, you would build a beautiful, house. It might look great from the outside, but you can do nothing about the foundation. And when the storms come, and they will, it will knock your house over. How many things do we have to go through in life to see no matter how hard you try, you can't hold it all together? And yet Jesus says, I will remain with you. I will be with you. I am the rock that you build upon. And for many of us, we need to say, God, thank you for being the rock. I want to begin to build my life now with new habits and new pursuits and new passions that you give me. And I know that I'm going to fail and I'm going to make mistakes. And it's not going to be perfect. But I know that when the storms come, I am safe because I'm built upon you. 
That is the good news of the gospel. That is why Jesus died for your sin, to give you life in him. That's why he rose, so that you can build your life upon him. The rock, not the shifting sand. So you can do the hard work of establishing heart habits and understanding your story by processing pain with others. You can install new weekly rhythms that are helpful to put into practice the very things that will teach you the ways of Jesus. And you can engage discipleship because you're not supposed to do it alone because you're standing upon the rock that is Christ.